Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Calling all surgical education junkies. Behind the Knife is looking to add three new fellows to our team this year. We are thrilled to be adding these positions as we've got big plans for the future and want you to be a part of them. We're working on countless projects that will make a real impact on surgical education, like our Trauma Surgery Video Atlas, Comprehensive Student Curriculum, Global Surgery and Innovation Podcast Series, and our Specialty Oral Board Reviews. We're looking for enterprising surgical residents to take the bull by the horns, to build something new and exciting, and to innovate. You will benefit from ample support from the Behind the Knife team, the use of our brand new digital education platform, and access to all of our resources, including illustrators, video editing, and more. Get your name out there and build your CV by being part of the number one surgery podcast in the world. You will even get paid for your work on choice projects. We are offering a two-year fellowship starting July 2024 and ending in June 2026. Only residents beginning their two-year academic development time will be considered, and the residents, institutions, and mentors must approve of this fellowship. Check out the show notes for the application link. All applications are due March 25th. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second Behind the Knife Surgical Education episode brought to you by the Collaboration of Surgical Education Fellows, or COSEF. We hope you enjoyed our first episode, Thriving as a Surgical Intern, and we're excited to bring you more interesting content about surgical education. I'm Rebecca Marisi. I'm a general surgery resident at LSU in New Orleans, currently in my second year of surgical education research at the University of Michigan. Also getting an MHPE, which is a master's in health professions education at the University of Michigan as well. And my research is mainly around trainee assessment and the transition to competency-based training models. Ananya, want to introduce yourself? Sure. So hi, everyone. My name is Ananya Anand, the other host of our mini-series. So I'm a general surgery resident at Stanford University, currently spending my professional development time as one of Stanford's surgical education fellows. And I'm in the second and final year of my surgical education fellowship, after which I'll be returning back to clinical residency. Similar to Rebecca, I'm also pursuing a master's in health professions education, minus through the University of Illinois, Chicago. And my research interests are in resident wellness, professional identity formation, and improving feedback for surgical residents during training. Joe. And hello, BTK listeners. I'm Joe LaHoulier. I'm a general surgery resident at the University of Buffalo, currently in my academic development time away from the hospital. I'm currently pursuing my master's in health professions education from the MGH Institute for Health Professions Education. I'm also a research fellow working on an ECRIP grant from the New York State Department of Health studying trauma outcomes and surgical education. But my favorite title is dad to my twin eight-month-olds. So we are your three consistent hosts for the six COSEF surgical education podcasts over the next two years. You might be wondering what the heck is COSEF? Well, We are a multi-institutional organization of surgical education fellows working together to foster peer mentorship, networking, and scholarly collaboration. We meet every week to discuss ongoing research efforts by individuals or by smaller groups within COSEF. We actually became a formal part of the Association for Surgical Education as well within the past year. If you are a surgical education fellow or a surgery resident interested in education and you're interested in joining COSEF or learning more, Email us at cosefconnect at gmail.com. That's C-O-S-E-F connect at gmail.com. And we have some really exciting content for you guys this time around. 
As resident physicians, we work very hard for very little monetary compensation. I think we all agree on that, which is why we're looking forward to discussing the salary of resident physicians today on BTK. With us today, we have Dr. Melissa Dresden. She's a general surgery resident at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And she's also the first author on both papers we'll be discussing today. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And we also have Dr. Jed Kalata, the senior author on the projects that we'll be discussing today. He's an assistant professor of colorectal surgery, also at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And we are really thrilled that he could join us today. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kalata. Thank you very much for allowing us to share our work. So today we'll be discussing two of their articles. And we'll start off with the first, which was published in 2023 in the Annals of Surgery. And it's titled, Going for Broke, The Impact of Cost of Living on Surgery Residents' Stipend Values. So this article was absolutely fascinating to me, and I really appreciate your willingness to take on this topic. You start off the article by saying that resident financial debt is a top driver of stress and burnout. I agree. You mentioned that there was a 7.1% increase in consumer price index from 2020 to 2021, but a corresponding increase in resident stipends by only 0.6%. What an insane mismatch. So Melissa, let's start with you. Can you take us back to the beginning of this problem? How are residency positions funded in the first place? Yeah, so the residency compensation structure is pretty complex. Most of the funding for residency stipends comes from Medicare and Medicaid, which is kind of organized by the Center for Medicaid Services. That's where the bulk of the money comes from. There are small amounts of money that come from like the VA or the Department of Defense, which funds the military-affiliated residency positions. And these funds are broken up into direct medical education and indirect medical education to cover you know, the direct costs of training residents, including our stipends, our malpractice coverage, other administrative costs, and the cost to cover our educational space. And that indirect medical education is funds are aimed to sort of cover the implied increase in cost to a training facility for having residents at all. There are some individual hospitals that have private agreements with insurance companies or that contribute their own funds towards resident education, but there's very little information as to what sort of negotiations they have or what sort of compensation they receive. And then at an institutional level, for the most part, resident stipends are determined by a GME committee that either approves the residency stipend annually or submits a recommendation to like a board of regents, board of trustees, or a hospital CEO who then approves the final stipend. And then like I said, that big chunk of money that comes from the federal and state funds gets divided up into the actual stipend and resident benefits, as well as the other sort of affiliated costs. Got it. Dr. Collada, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think Melissa did a really good job kind of making that graph and elucidating that. This process is completely difficult to figure out. In fact, when we first started researching this and a lot of other authors commented on how difficult it is to actually find out what the CMS contribution is for each institution. And not only that, at an institutional level, it is not completely transparent uh, how each institution divvies out what actually gets into your take-home salary. And so we were very fascinated by the fact that this process is, is very much non-transparent at the government level and also at the institutional level. Yeah, thank you for that. So just for our listeners, the main objective of the first study was to provide a direct comparison of first-year general surgery resident stipends across the states and major cities 
using the cost of living index to determine the adjusted stipend value. And it looks like you had made a list of all the programs using the AMA Fellowship and Residency Electronic Interactive Database. And you found uh, those stipends online. And it sounds like what you're saying is you might have had some trouble finding all of those stipend values. Can you comment on that? So for the most part, these stipend values are available um, on the program's website or by contacting the GME office and they were able to provide it. We were able to get 97% of all allopathic surgery residency stipend values. So we were only missing a few. So for the most part, I think we got a fairly comprehensive picture of what residency stipends were across the country. I think the only ones we had trouble were some of the military residencies in particular, memory serves. So it sounds like you found that the overall, you know, average stipend was about $60,000 and the average overall cost of living adjusted salary was $57,000 with an average value loss of about $3,000 to $5,000 or 5%. But it sounds like there was some major regional variance. Um, Can you both speak to some of that regional variance that you identified in your study? Yeah, of course. So one thing that we did find, you know, is that in expensive areas to live, like California and New York, the coast specifically, there was some higher compensation. So we have a table in our in our manuscript that highlights the top 10 resident stipends by state, um, just the average stipend. So those include California, Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts. But then we also have um, the top 10 cost of living index adjusted resident stipends by state. <clears throat> and those states include Sorry, those states include Iowa, Ohio, Georgia, Missouri, North Carolina, sort of like the central country. So to look at the like the top resident stipend in California for those residents who are offered a housing stipend, that stipend was $72,385 before cost of living adjustment. Um, After cost of living adjustment, it was $53,539. Um, with a value difference of about $19,000 or 26% value loss by living in California. That compares to the lowest stipend value before cost of living adjustment, which was in Mississippi. The average stipend in Mississippi was $48,649. So there was a $23,000 difference between California and Mississippi. After cost of living adjustment, the highest compensated state by value was Iowa with $64,000. And the lowest was Washington, D.C., with about $37,600. And that is a greater difference, a $26,500 difference. Um, So it just shows that the variation between states' average stipends and cost of living adjusted stipends um, is different. There's a greater variation in the actual value than there is in the standard um, unadjusted average stipend. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting, in particular, this finding that you have with all this tremendous regional variance, because as a surgical resident living in California in one of the most expensive places to live in the country, I think all of us sort of understand and feel some of that pressure. But if you just look at our stipend values numerically, the value is quite high. But actually getting to see some of this cost of living data and the adjustment data that you guys have really sheds a lot of light into a lot of the issues that you know contribute to so much of the financial pressure that that we can feel. Yeah, I think yeah. that. Go ahead. Dr. I think a lot of the students, you know, just aren't prepared for all of this. Yeah, I know as myself as a student, 
you assume that the compensation rate difference between New York and Mississippi has accommodated for this adequately. And that's why you get paid 70 plus thousand dollars as an intern in New York compared to elsewhere. Uh, but was eye opening for us as we learned a little bit more about this is that in no way does it compensate for cost of living adequately in these very high expense areas. And in fact, the system isn't designed to be flexible enough for it to be to adjust as our cost of living has risen so greatly in this country over the past few years. And one example of this sort of like regional variance and what it can, how it can impact residents, we highlighted in our manuscript. So we looked at comparing Washington, D.C., which is the region with the highest cost of living index and Illinois, which as a state has a cost of living index of zero or like the average, essentially the national average. So if a um, resident in Illinois spent about $37,500 on goods and services, a Washington, D.C. surgery resident would have to spend about $60,000 to afford the exact same thing, which means that this Illinois resident would have, you know, like $22,000 more purchasing, saving, investing power compared to the Washington, D.C. resident, just solely based on where they're located with earning the exact same salary. And were you able to sort of identify whether, you know, where residents were sort of clustered regionally and whether there are more residents in areas where potentially there's more value loss than other areas of the country? I think that's what we were able to better identify in the next study that we'll talk about. We looked at resident positions compared to resident programs in identifying the cities that we focused more on. In this study that we published in Annals of Surgery, we looked at cities with greater than four residency programs. And then in, in the next study, we looked you know, at residency positions from like the number of spot availability. So when I first read this article, one line in particular jumped out at me. Although matching into surgical residency potentially opens the door to future financial security, it comes with the reality of an additional five to nine years of low income and financial insecurity that is characterized by residency itself. Wow. You cite other work that says over 40% of residents receive financial support from their family and that a higher percentage of Black, Hispanic, and Native American grads have educational debt than whites. Now, for the record, over 75% of residents have educational debt, which is high, but there are still significant disparities by race. So with all of that said, Melissa, Dr. Collada, what can we do and who owns this problem? I know these are complex issues that will likely require solutions at a variety of levels. So what can we do as residents within our institution and as a nation at large? Yeah, I think that's like one of the big questions that we ended up with at the results of this work. I think in terms of who owns the problem, I think right now it's hard to say, but I think in terms of who's going to make the biggest difference in tackling this problem, it's going to be the residents. Unfortunately, we're a time-burdened and transient workforce, so it's hard to get um, meaningful organization across residencies across the country when everybody is extremely busy and not there for long. And when on the other side, like I said, your compensation sometimes feels like it may make up for the challenges you faced in residency um, financially. So I think that there have been some moves made to try to improve residency compensation. I think ultimately the solution lies in opening up and basically having a bigger pot of money to draw from. There were a couple um, proposals that were brought to like the legislative floors in Congress. 
One was the All-Payer Graduate Medical Education Act, and one was the Medical Education Trust Fund Act, which proposed a 1% and 1.5% respectively tax on private insurance premiums, looking for private insurance to start contributing to GME funding. As we discussed before, our funding comes from state and federal funding, although private insurance companies do get the benefit of our work as we do not simply or we do not only treat patients who have you know, Medicare and Medicaid. And I think asking private insurance to start chipping in for the benefits that they receive from our work is reasonable. I think that requires a lot of advocacy, obviously, because insurance lobbies are very strong. And that's where these acts have gotten hung up in Congress. So I think it starts, you know, for individual programs, doing like grassroots efforts to try to improve the financial situation of your program. But I think as a whole, if we want to like lift everybody up, that's where it's going to have to be is at like a national policy level. Yeah, I think we basically have to show that we care. And I think in the end, I think all of us are going to own this issue from a hospital standpoint, from a faculty standpoint, from a residency standpoint to a medical student standpoint. I think we all have to be aware of these uh, circumstances in order to advocate for better change. Now, again, that is difficult with the institutional you know, inertia that exists, being that this is a generally government-based work. And then also on the hospital side, you know, again, one of the benefits of having residents is that is their flexibility and the fact that they are at a discount compared to maybe some more professional counterparts or mid-levels. And so one of the things that we wanted in our research is to try to give numbers to this problem. I think one of the things that I, I mentioned uh, uh, whenever we present this at meetings or discuss it on campus here is that everyone thinks that they are an expert on this. You know, some of the reactions we've gotten are that, of course, it's expensive to live in California. Of course, it's expensive to live in New York. Uh, that's not a surprise. But when people start hearing the numbers, the actual differences of the numbers of what your take home is and what your value is, then people start asking questions and saying, you know what? what is the real value of me going to Stanford versus University of Cincinnati? And as a medical student applying, as a consumer, as a person applying, I think it's really valuable to have that data to apply and really consider that. And then um, in this, on an institutional level for residencies as we're trying to recruit the very best and brightest in the world, to be aware of these difficulties so that we can be flexible and sympathetic to our residents' needs. And I think overall, we're reaching this kind of era, especially in cancer, where precision medicine really is the future of cancer treatment and maybe all treatments if you really think about it that way. But I think a lot of the good work that COSEF is doing and a lot of the educational work that people are doing around the country is that we're also realizing as we diversify our student body, this idea of a perfect medical student is maybe doesn't exist. And maybe the way that we have to adjust the way that we teach people is in the same way as we individualize cancer treatment, that we have to individualize treatment strategies or educational strategies to the person. And as we diversify our student and resident workforce, how are we flexible enough to design systems so that people from all different kinds of backgrounds can thrive and contribute to a, a creative future of solutions for healthcare in our systems? Yeah, that's a really great point. Obviously, as COSEF, we love to support trainees. And of course, we want to look out for all of the students that are going to be applying for residency in the future. And one of the questions I had was, in the study, did you guys look at all when you were comparing across these major cities, the programs that were unionized and that weren't? And then 
If so, kind of how that contributed to these findings? That is something that we are looking at with the 2022-2023 stipend data, comparing it to this data set that we used in this manuscript, giving ourselves a comparator between like stipend increase percentage from year to year based on unionized programs, especially we have a collection of newly unionized programs from the 2020 to 2021 academic year to the like preceding academic years. I think the trend towards unionization is growing. So I think that gives us a really unique um, perspective in what we're able to collect. I think there has been a study that I believe was published in JAMA, but it was looking at, you know, the benefits of unionization, showing that there was no stipend benefit associated with unionization, although there was significant difference in um, vacation days and um, housing stipends associated with unionized programs. I think that we have shown in the data that we collected specifically for California that the hype, the housing stipend can make a big difference in terms of what your actual um, stipend value is and then also what your housing affordability options are when you do have that stipend available. And that stipend is a taxed benefit that gets included with your um, monthly paycheck. So we counted that as income and I think it could have been considered income in that manuscript as well. But it, we had some difficulty finding this data. I think even when you we take a look at the the unionized websites, it's very unclear what goes to what, right? And so I then again, just the transparency of this whole process. I, I just one of my wishes was, was that it's just not so difficult as a consumer, so to speak, as a medical student trying to figure all this out. It just doesn't exist in an easy and clear to interpret format. Um, so very difficult to know the risks and the benefits of unionized versus non-unionized. What should you ask for? What can you ask for? And like we mentioned in our study in uh, in the manuscript, you know, uh, I, I think at a, as a medical student, you're just wishing to match. Uh, you're not really thinking at that level. And maybe we should. Yeah, and I, I'm really um, interested in sort of tying this back to kind of what was talked about at the beginning, kind of setting up this article was the amount of sort of pressure the financial strain puts on residents in terms of contributing to like wellness and on the flip side uh, to burnout that you know a lot of this is sort of in the ether and your group is finally putting some numbers to the information and bringing up this issue so that as you know students are considering residency this can be one of those factors that they can examine because it is so important in considering wellness. There was a group that published on these domains of wellness that are really important in surgical residency, and one of that is financial, but there's just such a lack of information out there. And so I think the work that you guys are doing is really great in in actually giving us some data to examine and consider and think about in terms of trying to change the face of what resident salary and benefits looks like. And on the topic of, you know, availability of information, I wonder if in addition to listing the stipends on program websites, they could be listing, you know, what is the cost of living index adjustment transparently for applicants? It seems like they're perfectly willing to, you know, list the stipend itself, but uh, I'm not sure why, you know, we wouldn't be willing to just list what the adjustment is right there as well. Yeah, and I mean, I think for areas or programs that are in areas of low cost of living, it's a marketing tactic that they can use. You know, it can just say like, you can buy a home here, you can start a family here, you can afford to do these things that may be important for your life outside of work. 
because you would have financial access to it in a way that you may not in other programs. And I think that would bring some high quality residents to an area that may have not thought about that other aspect of training. And especially for surgical training that can be from five to seven years long, it's a really long time and a really important part of your life to feel super financially limited. And so I think, yeah, just being willing to talk about it. I think salary transparency, it's not the issue in you know, looking for a job in surgical residency, it's actually like how you're able to spend that money in the location where you are that I think people don't think about because medical school um, loans are talked about as monopoly money and people forget that residency is a low income because you just think about the monopoly money that's on the other side, right? Like your um, income potential. And then there's this gap that can feel really hard and can be pretty damaging for people depending on, you know, what sort of struggles, financial struggles or unexpected expenses they face in residency. And then some of our colleagues that may have completed, you know, training long ago, again, one of the things that we wanted to, to point out and, and what we just presented at the AMC is that, you know, this has been worsening over time. And so this isn't the first time that inflation has outweighed um, increase of salary year by year. And so this is exacerbated. So by putting numbers on it, again, I, I kind of call it this avocado toast uh, problem. There's an idea out there that residents are just being um, foolhardy with their money or they're not being responsible. And by actually putting numbers on it, we're actually show that this is a real problem and it's not anachronistic. And we, you have an expectation and you guys deserve wellness and to be safe and to feed yourselves and to have a family. And how do we equitably advocate for that? Well, it first starts with data and that first starts with here. So that's what our hope was with this paper. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. And on that note, why don't we switch to the second article? So this one is published in Global Surgical Education, which is the Journal of the Association for Surgical Education, or the ASE. And it's titled, A Costly Threat to GME the housing crisis, and residency training. And so similar to the first article, we're seeing that resident salaries are not keeping pace with rising housing costs. And so there was about a 19% increase in rent and home prices from 2020 to 2021, but only a 0.6% increase in resident stipends. And so the goal of uh, this study was to examine housing affordability by state and major city and you note that in order to be considered affordable, housing should cost less than 30% of your salary, which is standard financial advice. And you pulled the average rent by location from the National Low Income Housing Coalition's 2021 housing report and mortgage information from Business Insider and Realtor.com. So in terms of affordability of a one-bedroom apartment, what were sort of the main takeaways uh, from the study? So... When we were looking at affordability for one bedroom apartment, you know, what we did again was take the weighted average and we took the state's average stipends and looked at what would cost less than 30% of income. And in our manuscript, we have like a map of the United States that kind of breaks it down by spending less than 20% of income, 20 to 30%. So on the borderline of affordability and then greater than 30%, which would be unaffordable. And we find that for the most part, a one bedroom apartment at fair market rent, according to the coalition's report, is 
affordable. You know, we see some borderline affordability on the coast where we predict it would be more expensive, especially in um, the Northeast. And then housing was unaffordable um, or required greater than 30% of income in Washington, D.C. and in California, again, for those residents who are not offered a supplemental housing stipend. And then, you know, we do want to note that this definition of affordability is the definition that is used by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development as like their standard definition of affordability, which includes housing costs and utility costs. And it's a measure looking at gross annual income. And so what were you sort of able to kind of discover or uncover in regards to two-bedroom apartments with your study? So looking at the two-bedroom apartments, what we saw was kind of what we expected, right? That it's more expensive to rent a bigger apartment and that it becomes unaffordable for a greater proportion of the states, Washington, California, Hawaii, New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey. And I think you know, practically, it may not be reasonable for a resident to think that they're going to be able to rent a two-bedroom apartment in New York on their own income or a two-bedroom apartment in California just with their income. I think we just wanted to give kind of a global picture of what the housing market looks like for residents. I think sometimes, um, you know, it's not my situation, but I don't think it would be unheard of for a resident to be the sole income provider for a family that does need a larger space to live, like a two-bedroom apartment. Um, And so to think about how much that would stretch um, a resident's like financial uh, or their finances would um, was something that we wanted to show. And then for over half of the states in the country, mortgages were unaffordable. But you again acknowledge regional variation. And I know we talked a little bit about this already. So, for example, in the state of New York, where I currently live, owning a home is deemed unaffordable. However, I live in Buffalo, New York. I do own my home, and full disclosure, my wife is a PhD student, so she isn't raking in the dough either. There's some very real regional variation uh, within a state. So you actually did stratify your results by a specific major city. Just wondering if you could speak to that briefly. Yeah. So like in our previous study, we looked at what we defined as major cities. And for this study, we considered major cities to be cities where there are greater than 40 residency positions in that city. And so we were able to identify uh, major cities based on that. Now, what we found was that there is quite a big difference between the cost of housing in a major city compared to the state in general. So we looked at, as an example, Burlington, Vermont, which was not one of the major cities we identified, but we just wanted to kind of demonstrate the regional variability because in Vermont as a whole, one bedroom fair market rent is $979 a month. But there's only one surgical residency program in Vermont and it's in Burlington. And the one bedroom fair market rent in Burlington is like $1,260. So it's about a $300 a month difference in the only city with a surgical residency. And we found that housing for the most part was more expensive and unaffordable in the major cities we identified compared to the states. And so I guess like this kind of brings to light and an important issue is a lot of residents are clustered in these major cities. And so in some ways, a lot of this like housing crisis issue, like really disproportionately affects residents because we are so focused in a lot of big areas where there are a lot of hospitals, for example, cities like Chicago, New York, Boston. Um, And so how does that sort of kind of tie into sort of this overall body of work that you've been generating? 
Well, we first started, we actually started working on housing before we did the cost of living, even though we kind of published them in reverse. Because, you know, about two years ago, I was just scrolling through Med Twitter and Match Day is one of my favorite days to be on social media because it's just a wonderful, joyous occasion where everyone's posting about what they match, then they finally achieve their dreams. And then when I was scrolling through about a week later, there was a, a run of, of medical students that started looking into housing in Miami, in LA, in Seattle, to try to start making their plans to move to residency. And they found that they were completely priced out of the market, that there were some predatory rental uh, practices that were happening in this post-COVID time. And in addition to that, lack of number of rental units that were actually available. I, was it Vermont, Melissa? I think it was Vermont where we saw that one post where a medical student looked at a filter from Zillow looking for affordable housing with an in-unit washer dryer within an hour and a half of her hospital, and she found one listing. You know, again, what the data shows here is a little bit skewed in the sense that we use this coalition's data, which is for low-income housing, basically. It is specifically non-luxury housing. So it might not have in-unit washer dryer, might not have included or safe parking, and it might not be in the most desirous or safe area in each of their cities or, or locations. And so I think it underestimates some of the scarcity and financial um, vulnerability here. But I think it did show that this is something that is is in the now and is changing very rapidly and, and might have been affected disproportionately because of COVID. But it's ultimately something that is absolutely non-negotiable. You know, you can't work unless you have safe housing. And so you know, that led us to, you know, figuring out, well, is this part of a bigger problem in the cost of living or is this unique or even worse in housing? And we're able to show that, I guess, for one bedroom, if you're very, very precise, uh, you can get by. But when you take it in this larger context, it's something that is um, kind of metastasizing out from major cities. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that we highlighted in the beginning of our discussion in this manuscript was that one bedroom fair market rent was unaffordable in 40% of the identified major cities, as well as, like we said, D.C. and California for um, residents without a housing stipend. And in total, these regions where one bedroom or one bedroom fair market rent is unaffordable, it accounts for 44 general surgery residency programs, which means that first-year residents in 12.7% of programs may lack access to affordable one bedroom an affordable one bedroom apartment and i think you know like we said we don't think that it may be reasonable for a resident in new york to expect to rent a two bedroom apartment but we do think that it is reasonable for every resident matching anywhere to be able to rent an affordable one bedroom apartment in reasonable proximity to their training facility and we've found that that was not the case that is crazy to me. I just can't believe that there's that many surgical residents who who can't afford, you know, a one bedroom apartment. What are folks in these cities doing? Does anybody know? I know nobody here is from Boston or New York City or kind of some of the major cities, but does anybody on the call know what what do folks do? There is a really amazing survey study published by a group out of the Brigham. It's called Graduate Medical Education Funding Mechanisms, Challenges and Solutions. And they have another article as well that looks at the the survey data that they collected. And, you know, they found that 46% of residents um, take on personal debts during residency, 44% delay children, 26%, I think, delay getting married. Other people, you know, get supplemental income from their family members or financial support from others. And I think other residents, you know, share rent by getting roommates and, you know, like shared housing options too, I think, you know. 
once you match, you have to go. You're contractually obligated, so people figure out a way to do it. I just don't think that that needs to be the case. And I think that really so poignantly kind of ties back to that one-liner from your first article that Joe pointed out about the reality of adding some additional years of low income and financial insecurity. But you're also probably adding on, you know, delaying so many things that you want to do with your life in order to try to, you know, like Dr. Colada said, is try to access safe housing to try to sort of navigate some of those financial difficulties. And I think that's why this is such an important topic um, to shed a tremendous amount of light on. Yes. And it, I think it's even compounded even more. You know, we didn't even kind of talk about the, the growing rates of fellowship involvement for surgical residents. We're extending careers in training longer and longer as it becomes increasingly untenable to be a, a, a surgeon without fellowship training. And as we diversify our workforce, both socioeconomically uh, in our medical students and residents, and also uh, by gender, we're going to have to figure out a way that you can still be come from a more lower socioeconomic status family and still thrive at a place in Boston or figure out how to be also a mother or a father during residency because those are years of your youth that you just can't get back and how to do that safely. Now, there are a lot of programs out there, ours included, that are trying to figure out a way to make maternity more standardized and have a protocol. And I think that's really lovely work. But I, again, you know, it, it, sometimes it kind of feels like getting a uh, a pizza pie after your company does really good in terms for or, or, or thanking you for your wellness um or where money would obviously make a more direct a more direct contribution to, to helping solve some of these issues so given that this is you know seems to be still an ongoing piece of work and a, a large project that you guys are tackling what do you think we can tell upcoming applicants or like fourth year medical students applying this cycle to either think about or to be asking during their residency interviews and really to consider as they make their rank list for this upcoming match cycle? I think it's a good question. I think, you know, what we found in doing this financial wellness research is that it is also incredibly nuanced because everybody's financial situation is so unique. And I think that that's just another thing to consider or that we ask, you know, fourth year medical students to consider when building a rank list. It's weighing the value of a program in an expensive city with the cost of living in that city and what access you have to other financial support if it's available to you. You know, we have seen in the NRMP um, applicant surveys that cost of living is becoming, there are more applicants that are considering cost of living when applying to programs in general and then also when ranking programs. So it's still hanging out in the 50 to 60 percent of applicants that consider these things. And I think it's like we mentioned in the manuscript to the fact that not matching is so much worse than matching in somewhere where you can't afford in the mind of an applicant. I think I would consider myself in that group, too. Um, but, you know, I think that that's something that programs need to start considering, too. And I think the whole kind of medical enterprise needs to start thinking about is if we're starting to see that people who feel that they can't afford to live in expensive cities, you know, people who come from a non-traditional background, who do not have like family generational wealth, if they can't go to these programs, are our programs in expensive cities going to start becoming more homogenous just because of the people that are able to feel that they're able to apply there? 
But I think in terms of advice for medical students applying now, again, it would just be to to consider it a bit. Think about like what your wellness means. And like you said, with the domains of wellness, like where does financial wellness fit into that? And what goals outside of simply a career goal, which is so hard to think about when you're applying to residency and your four years of medical school is built up to it. But what other goals do you have that you would like to accomplish in the next seven years, the bulk of your 30s? And how can a program in the financial situation that program would put you in set you up to achieve those things? Yeah, 100%. Well said, Melissa. I would say just in general, programs and hospitals are going to care about what you care about. And so I would advocate for medical students, if this is something that's uh, important to you, to ask about it. How do your residents do in terms of housing? How do they find housing? Is there any help that the institution has? What kind of programs or policies do they have to help residents that are in need? Uh, And you'll often find that I think a lot of the uh, progressive thinkers tend to be thinking or attacking these problems all at once. And so uh, I think you can really find um, some really great programs that are doing really great, wonderful things. And as that becomes more universal around the country, I think hopefully you'll find a lot of copycats that that pop up as we try to make this more equitable for everybody. And I think uh, we have to thank you guys for inviting us to share our work here. I think it starts with a conversation. Again, I think some of the feedback we've gotten, again, is that this is an obvious finding, that this is something that that is obviously true. But again, when you look at the numbers, it's a little bit shocking when you get down to the nitty gritty and how it's changed over time. And so I think just talking about it and raising awareness of this being an issue is something that's really, really valuable. And and we thank you so much for having us on the show. And we're really, really privileged to be able to have you guys on on this episode and to have such a wonderful discussion about not only two really wonderful and really well done pieces of research, but on the topic that is so very important to residents. And so as we sort of wrap up our discussion, we wanted to give you both, Melissa and Dr. Colada, an opportunity to just provide any last concluding thoughts, particularly about kind of where you see your work going from here. What are sort of the next steps and next directions you're planning on taking um, with your research? Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for the platform. This just means a lot to us. And I think it's great to be able to reach a broader audience. The things going forward that we're looking at, you know, like we said, is the value that residencies gain by unionization. I think that's just something that's been trending. And so seeing what sort of actual financial benefit residency programs are gaining from that. I think another thing we're looking at is how to best assess of the value of a resident. I think if we're going to be asking anybody on a large scale, especially on a national level to raise resident pay, we have to come with data that shows that we are um, being paid below our value. So there's been studies that have looked at the cost of our replacement, you know, replacing residents with X number of nurse practitioners or is, but I think that's not really a truly accurate measure of resident value. You know, we bring different things to these services. So I think that's something we're still trying to tackle is how can we actually accurately and objectively assess the value that we provide so that when we do go work on future policy, we can show that, you know, there is a disparity between what we're what value we provide and then, you know, what we're getting compensated for it. And then I think finally at another policy level is thinking about how can we sort of divorce residency compensation from federal health care spending legislation. I think that is a really important thing to think about 
is the fact that when, you know, Medicare get, spending gets cut, that impacts GME compensation. And I think that those two things should be separate. We should not be impacted by attempts to cut federal health care spending. So I think that's just another policy kind of target that's in our sights. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's what we're working towards. Again, trying to find the value of a resident is something that's a bit tricky in the way it's structured. But I think it's cru- absolutely crucial as we try to figure out our next best steps on how to equitably arrange a sustainable system for resident compensation. And we understand that these are really difficult topics. And they're it, when you talk about money, it's always very sensitive. One of the feedback we've gotten when we mentioned this is that as soon as you start talking about it, you know, the surgical tech raises their hand and say, well, I'm underpaid too. And the nurses raise their hands, well, I'm underpaid too. And we understand that being a doctor while in training is a hardship is also a privilege. And we don't want to be insensitive to that. But that shouldn't paralyze us from trying to find, again, equitable solutions as we're trying to attack this goal. And again, that starts with conversation. And so I'd like to invite everyone again to our hot topic session at the Academic Surgical Congress, where um, we've been very fortunate to also gain recognition for our research to bring this topic um, at the conference level. And we've been uh, able to invite some experts around the country to sit around a table and and talk about it in a podium format. So we're very excited to offer that. And, and um, we hope to see you there at um, in Washington, D.C. And on a note, if there's anyone around the country that wants to collaborate or, or has some criticism for us, so we'd love to hear it, feedback. My email is j Kalata at mcw at dot edu, J-C-A-L-A-T-A at mcw.edu. I won't make Melissa spell her last name because sometimes it gets a little bit hard, but maybe mine is a bit easier. And we'd really love to hear feedback and we're really excited to, to reach out to the audience of Behind the Night. Well, thank you guys again. We are excited to see you in D.C. as well. Big thank you to Dr. Dresden and Dr. Kalata again from Medical College of Wisconsin for joining us today. Really great discussion, and we look forward to seeing all of your future work on this topic. Thanks to everyone for listening today, and feel free to reach out with ideas for our next podcast. You can tweet your suggestions at, at Surge Ed Fellows or at Behind the Knife. Thank you guys again. Go forth, be kind, don't forget to collaborate, and dominate, dominate the day. day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.